From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Vanella Kernabone. My name is Isabella Manfredi. I'm a musician, singer, songwriter, and I wanted to be a singer, songwriter when I grew up. Since she was a kid, there was never any doubt in Izzy Manfredi's mind that she wanted to make music, a dream that was finally realised when she met Jack Moffat and Thomas Champion at uni, and together they formed The Preachers. Influenced by The Beatles, The Divinals and The Pretenders, the band achieved international success with their 2013 track, Is This How You Feel? The band just released Girlhood, a distinctly personal album that draws on stories from Izzy's own childhood and adolescence. So Izzy, take me back to where this all began for you. Is music something that you have always been passionate about? Yeah, I I remember vividly being in primary school and all the other kids, we'd get in a big circle and we'd all talk about what do you want to do when you grow up? And all the other girls would say, I want to be a famous singer. And that used to really shit me as a small child because I realised that if I said, in fact, that I wanted to be a singer, then I was just like all the other girls. And so I said, I want to be a, a marine biologist. And I took this on as my thing for a couple of years until I realised that I hated fish <laughs> and was <laughs> freaked out by being in the water. So I abandoned that. So when you said as a small child that you, you always wanted to be a musician and yet you kind of battled against it because that was the predictable thing that young girls did, but you still obviously were devoted to music. Can you remember what you were listening to when you were really little? What was the things that were I influencing do. you then? My dad had a Toyota Corolla that he used to drive us around in. It stunk of meat and, you know, eggs and sort of rotting things. <laughs> he used to have a cassette player. And we used to listen to Crowded House and Smashing Pumpkins. I still think to this day that that Smashing Pumpkins song was in The Lion King because we went and saw The Lion King and then listened to Smashing Pumpkins. So I've got a lot of music's always been, uh, you know, in the, in the mesh of my memory. A lot of my early memories of music were actually whatever was on the Hottest 100, which started, I think, in 90... 93. Right. So this sort of early experience of listening to music and obviously, you know, even travelling around in the car, I was reading an interview where your dad actually talked about the fact that when you were a baby, you used to cry all the time and to, to put you at ease, he used to just pop you in the car. I hope it wasn't the Toyota Corolla. Well, it might have been. <laughs> and it used to just really, really calm you down. Do you find that that's what you still do today? You, you make music, but um, I know this is sort of, sort of a bit of a stretch from being a baby to today, but, you know, this idea of trying to find a way to calm down by listening to music itself. What a bastard. I didn't know he said that about me. Yeah, that's what they I do. Dads are like that. That is essentially why people make music, is to soothe themselves. I mean, some people watch Netflix. To try and chill out. Mm. Mm. And what do you do? You listen to music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I watch Netflix, though. What do you watch? Vikings. Oh. <laughs> What is it about that show in particular that you like? I like the the female protagonist, Lagatha, and the way that she solves problems through violence. Which is always a good thing, I think. Yeah. It's something to inspire and to be you know, inspired by. I'm what just kidding. I did a DNA test recently and I discovered that I had no Italian DNA. It was all Saxon, German, um, and 
mid-European, so uh, northern and mid-European, Germanic, Slavic, Scandinavian. So the Manfredis are essentially, you know, Germanic peoples. Not Italians. Not Italians. That's really interesting. Mm. What is it that marks our desire to understand ourselves? I mean, we sit there and we go to self-help, you know, exercises and groups, et cetera, but there's this new thing where you go and investigate yourself and get a DNA test. What does it say about who we are that we must know our genetic history in order to understand ourselves, do you think? Well, I think we're living in a very unique situation at the moment where kind of a everything that civilization has been built on, which is the ties to your ancestry and uh, Fred who begot Fred who begot Fred who begot Fredina or how, however we used to think about ourselves in, in terms of w- where we came from and our place in the universe and our tribe, our clan, was survival. That was how we survived. And we don't have that anymore. Mm. So I think it's really interesting that all of these uh, systems or or, uh, TV shows or whatever are are cropping up and people are getting really into them because they're about that sense of deep ancient history and the time before time. I spent a lot of time thinking about all of that sort of stuff when I made this record. Mm. To, To try and understand what it means to belong makes it sound like 2007 HSC all over again. No, I think it's more about people need, we need myth, we need, you need some higher connection and music is essentially how we would pass down story. I wonder how that um, manifests itself because we live in such an oversaturated world. There is so much music out there. There is so much story to to punch through or to filter through or to be heard. Mm. What is it that you feel you can do or you need to do to make that noise um, reach our ears, I suppose? I don't know. Mm. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> it helps, doesn't it? When you were a kid, Izzy, um, you, you talked about you wanted to be a marine biologist and all these other kinds of things. So it sounds almost like you had a reasonably complicated relationship to music. Uh, how, did you, how did you find your way back to actually being a musician? Take me back to, to that story. Well, I started playing piano when I was three and uh, I went to a music school, music and language school, so there was a lot of uh, what you'd call oral skills, a lot of ta-te-ta-te-ta-ta-ta-fa-ta-fa-ta-fa-ta-ta-ta and I loved all of that stuff, anything to do with rhythm, anything to do with people in a big group uh, singing or clapping or playing xylophones, playing instruments, I, I loved that. I remember really loving being spoken to or being sung to and then having to repeat that back to the teacher. Uh, and I had a great freedom when I was a kid because, you you know, you don't care as a kid whether or not the chord you're playing on the guitar is the right chord. I had no idea how to play guitar, but I was, I was always picking up my dad's guitar and playing whatever chords. I got to about six or seven... I used to go and do little recitals and competitions, piano competitions. I don't have a lot, much memory of this other than the blue suit I used to wear. My nonna used to knit me these fabulous outfits when I was a kid and I had this little blue suit that I would go and play all the recitals in and I'd do this like... Mum tells a story about how I would do the piece, whatever the piece was, Mozart, Bach, something like that. And then 
I would improvise. She said, without anybody telling you, (laughs) you just do a piece of your own improvisation. (laughs) I'm like, I have no memory of that. It's very cute. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it was. I remember being very nervous but also really enjoying the, the sense of competition. How did music become something that you knew you wanted to pursue? I guess... Through being a, uh, when I was a teenager, I was just a fan. I guess I I broke from that feeling of that I was a musician myself or that I was a songwriter myself, uh, even though I was I was writing songs all throughout the way, high school. Throughout high school, something broke in me, which meant that there was a separation between the musicians that I saw out in the world that I idolised and the musician that I was, which I didn't, for some reason I didn't correlate that I could actually do that or that I even just inherently was a musician, which we all are. We're all musicians. It's very easy for somebody to pick up, you know, a knife and fork at the dinner table and just bash away on the plates as kids do. Like they're all, you know, kids are musicians essentially. Then at some point we lose that. And I think the music industry has got a lot to answer for yeah. in that respect because it's taken away music from its its roots as a uniting sort of tribal force which we we've, which we need to communicate with each other and and made it this product. Do you think it's the music industry or a bit of both? In some ways I feel like it's our, our education system that kind of stamps out um, the passion, if that makes sense. Yeah, well... Uh... I grew up in a school that was Montessori, so there was uh, a lot of freedom. But then I missed out on the rote learning stuff, so I've never been able to read music, partly because of my own laziness, but also because I didn't, I wasn't taught the fundamentals. And I actually think that rote learning is really important. When you have any craft, you, you have to rote learn it. You have to practice. You have to know the essentials. We're get, sort of getting into the tangent of education, but music, musical education, you're right, it's so important. But I guess when you focus on the creativity of the child over teaching them the fundamentals so that then when they get older, they can create. I think that I just think there needs to be balance. So not being able to read music has never been an issue for you, obviously, but yet you believe that rote learning is, is important. Tell me a bit about that. I'm curious. Well, not being able to read music has been an issue for me. I wish I could read music. Mm-hmm. It would be so cool to just sit down at the piano and, and play. I learn all my pieces by my piano teacher, Rose, who is a staunch Russian, sitting at the piano and playing me the piece. And then I would play it back in sections. We'd go section by section mm-hmm. so that I could remember it. And, yeah, I've got great ears because of that. I'm very grateful for that. I've got good listening skills. But, I mean, reading music, being able to write a chart or understand a chart, and now, particularly now I'm learning guitar, it would be great to, to be able to read tablature and to be able to read music. I'd love that. Yeah, it's a whole other language, isn't it? It can, mm. help, it can help. We There's still time, Izzy. I know. I'm yeah. not ruling it out. <laughs> yeah. I'm not ruling There's, it out. The, the world is your oyster, as they say. <laughs> yeah. um, you mentioned bands that you idolised or were a fan of when you were a teenager, and earlier on you said the Smashing Pumpkins, etc. But what, what were the ones that you were passionate about as a, as a teenager? Oh, so many. I was thinking about this the other day. Well, I got, got into Bob Dylan when I was 14 and a half, and that was huge for me. I had my, my heart broken for the first time and then heard Blood on the Tracks and then 
a couple of years after that, they released the New York sessions of Blood on the Tracks, which is, uh, blew my mind even further. Lots of Neil Young. I think On the Beat was my favourite record at that age. There are a lot of records that my dad introduced me to around that age, like 13, 14. We had Khalees and Alicia Keys, her debut record, songs in A minor, I think it was. These are very cool records for a father to introduce a daughter to, I must admit. Well, I think he was just trying to, I mean, my dad that loves music and it, it always had great ears, but I think he was also conscious of giving me stuff by female artists that I could relate to and letting me know that, yes, there are all these great rock and roll icons who are all men, but there's also this, you know, this tradition of women in in R&B and soul and it's just as important. It's just as as beautiful and magic. At that age, you know, as you're thinking about what am I going to do later, you know, that you said earlier, I'm always going to be a musician. So you're listening to these incredible female singers. Did you think you were going to be a solo artist or was it thinking, oh, I'm going to do a band or something like that? I had no idea. I Mm. really had no idea. At that point in my life, I wanted to be a writer. That was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to write. And from, I think, about 12 or 13 until... 18 or 19, well, actually until the present, until now, that's all I've wanted to do. Yeah. You write every day, don't you? Yeah. What does writing actually mean to, to do it every day? How do you write every day? Tell well, me about it. It's a discipline. It. It's, like any, it's like brushing your teeth. Thank God we all do that. And in fact, there was a period in the band's career where I wasn't writing and it destroyed me, really did. I was a shell of a woman. There's something about writing every day. Like they say that Ernest Hemingway did 500 words a day. Yeah, if you do anything, you've got to practice every day. You've got to be doing it every day. And I think the the issue for most people is that once you get out of that rhythm of just putting pen to paper, and I always write on paper, is that you start to think, well, what I'm writing isn't good enough or I hate my voice or oh, I can't spell or that sentence didn't make any sense or mm, it's all pointless. Mm. And this sense of hopelessness that comes with losing the discipline. And when you do it every day, you start to free up the mind, free up the voice. I use it just as basically a, a way of getting everything that is on my mind and even all the things that I have to do that day, like have to go see mum, have to call gran, have to do the laundry, you know, all the little things which are really what life is, mm, it's all it's- the little chores, especially for women. Yeah. <laughs> We've got things to do. <laughs> yeah. So, But it's not the same as writing a diary. It's, a, it's, it's as no. you say, you're exercising the muscle of, of the writing brain, I suppose. When I actually mistake it for a diary, things go wrong. So I start to get into that, I did this, this happened. Retelling the story is not the same as this is what I really think, this is what I really feel. Mm. And the great thing about it is that then I, I look at what I've written and I go, oh, wow, that's what's in there. Yeah, especially when it's the sensor or the the voice in your head that's saying you can't do that or things will never change, you'll never be like this, you'll never be like that. It's very good for, lo- for looking at the black and white way of thinking that we all have. Do you find that in that writing process that you're actually writing lyrics? I mean, it sounds like your lyrics are emerged from this process, this discipline that you're doing each day. Yeah, if I didn't do it every day, I wouldn't be able to write lyrics, but I, I don't write lyrics in the morning. The morning is just for me. 
I've done that practice in the morning, then when I go to write anything during the day, whatever it is, an email, a set of lyrics, a poem, it's easier because mm. I'm not thinking about all that other, that other shit that gets in the way. Mm. It sounds like good practice. I think I have to do this now. It's very good. Life, life lessons with Isabella Manfredi. This is good. <laughs> Brush your teeth, everyone. <laughs> Brush your teeth. It's a good, it's a good way of doing things. When you went to university, uh, was it Sydney University, wasn't it? The University of Sydney, as, yeah. they, as they like to call it as well. What were you studying? I was studying languages. Ah. So Bachelor of Arts in, in languages. And that's where you um, obviously got into music and kept doing music as well. But you, you, you left the University of Sydney? I did, yeah. yeah. But I, I'm actually back at uni now online. Okay. And what are you studying now? I'm just trying to finish my bloody degree. <laughs> Because you had to pull out, didn't you? Because things yeah. really lifted off for you guys. I started there in 2007. Then after that, I, I deferred and went to music college and that's where I met the boys. And then I went back in 2012. And in two that, 2012, I was just at the end of semester and we had a meeting with the A&R at, at Mercury who ended up signing us the same day and the same time as my final English exam. And I didn't know back then that you can totally fuck with labels and they don't care. I was all like, oh, my God, I've got to go to this meeting and I've got to do whatever. I should have just been like, hey, I've got an exam. Let's change the time of the meeting. I think I saw it as a choice, a very clear choice. I believe in signs from the universe. I totally do. Yes, my room is full of crystals and unicorns. I just saw it as, do you want this or do you want this? And I clearly wanted to to do music at that point. And I think there's also the feeling that once you're in something, you're in it. I am that kind of person. Once I start something, I want to finish it. Hence, well, yeah, I've gone back to uni because I want to finish the degree. Finish the degree. <laughs> Can I ask what your actual study, I mean, what you actually study in languages? I mean, I'm curious. I'd already done Italian and French all the way through high school. So you essentially, I, I was doing English, Italian, French, and then I did this stuff like art history and uh, I think I did one gender studies thing which I didn't get through. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't like it. Sorry. Back to the, the discipline though, the difference between literally going to a place and doing it on the internet as well. You're now studying, as you said, at Macquarie University. Uh, it, it, how hard is it for you to be disciplined about what you have to you know have to finish? Very hard. Having said that, on the road, I love it. I right. love the excuse to just go back to the hotel room and do my work. Right, as opposed to just, you know, going out with other people or feeling, you know... Just having to be with other people in general. Right. <laughs> well, it can be exhausting when you're touring, when you're when you're constantly having to socialise or smile, you know. Yeah. It's exhausting. I mean, I love being with people, but I also need a lot of time on my own. And I do struggle with being consistent about carving that time out because you have to be. You've got to you've got to piss some people off. What was it about um, your bandmates when you met them at the Institute of Music? What was it about Jack and and Tom when you met them that made made it work? That was a, a creative sync. I met them out front of the building, and they were sitting. The two of them, they would have been both just eighteen, and they had this ridiculous long hair. Jack was wearing flares. Now flares are in, but they were not in. So I went up to them. 
because I joined the college to do keys. And then after one semester, they put you together with these other musicians and you, you have to form these groups. And I was, just, I was just getting really bored dealing with these, you know, girls and guys, but mostly girls who wanted to be singers. And they just, I was like, look, I was finding myself giving them more pointers than working on getting better myself. So I thought, well, maybe I should just, just bite the bullet and do singing. I could do that. I was looking for a band because you have to put these ensembles together. And, and I saw these two guys and I was listening to a lot of Odetta at the time. I was obsessed with Odetta and Muddy Waters and Hal and Wolf. And I went through a big blues phase and, well, you call it a phase. I mean, the blues is for life. You, you live with it your whole life after that. But I was just starting to really devour that that tradition and I went up to them and I said hey you know hi Mizzy do you guys like blues music and they both just looked at each other and snickered and they're like who the fuck is this girl what do you know about blues you know have you ever met a, a young white kid that went to private school talking about the blues yeah they know that was oh yeah they really know their stuff that was the two of them <laughs> Snobs to the core. <laughs> what do you know about blues? I was like, well, I'm listening to Odetta and, you know, and they, and they looked at me like, oh, she knows Odetta. Oh, my God. She's kin. She's one of us. We will never part. And that's basically how the band started. Did you start with the blues? Yeah, a lot of blues stuff. Lots of Rolling Stones and Beatles and Led Zeppelin. From influences through to actually forming your own sound, describe how that actually developed. Still developing. Yeah. I don't, still don't know. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we played a lot of really shitty gigs around Sydney. We played at the Dremoyne RSL. We used to do covers, so we'd do white stripe covers and we did this, I remember we did this Valentine's Day gig and it was a huge haul. They paid us 400 bucks, which was a lot of money at the time. And there were 11 payers and they were all women. Wow. So they, they were not going to meet anyone that night, but we ended up having a really good night. They all danced with us and so we ended up going out and having drinks with them all afterwards. What started us really playing in Sydney was when we played uh, the gallery bar at Oxford Art Factory and then we'd play Spectrum and Q Bar and um, sort of, yeah. just It builds up from there. But it's interesting yeah. that you talk about that you started out by doing these gigs that you were playing covers. And it's you know, people can kind of snicker about that. It says so much about how you can work together really well as a band um, and, and communicate because people know those songs. So, you, you know, you can make them your own, but you also just, you've really, it, it means that you're getting tight too. It helps with that. Well, it comes back to that, what we were talking about before about rote learning. Unless you know the basics and unless you know the vocabulary of how people write songs and make good songs and how the songwriters throughout the last century have created hooks and, you know, how do you do a key change and how do you structure a song so it feels effortless and mm. stuff like that. You don't know that unless you're physically engaging with it, unless you're physically playing it and understanding the chord structures. And So you're, you're writing, you know, your own music at the same time, obviously playing covers and, and sort of forming the, the band is continuing on and then this first EP comes out 2012, which isn't that long ago really. How, how was the reception when that one first came out for you? It was, it was so long ago. 
That's like five years ago. Do you know how what's happened in the last five years? No, no. Oh yeah, God. for me, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, that was so long ago. I don't know. I mean, putting something out into the world, yeah, it's fucking terrifying. Mm. I still get terrified by it. But, yeah, you got to do it. Otherwise, mm. it doesn't get done. <laughs> Otherwise, no one knows what you're doing. Otherwise, no one can criticise you or judge you or mm. have anything to say or like the music or not like the music. I don't know. I try not to think about it so mm. much. And what about when the next one came out um, soon afterwards? Is this how you feel? Uh, absolutely fucking huge. So so massive. So describe describe that time for me as well. What did you What did you feel? It was funny because I I had no fear. It was like whatever happens happens. And I remember us trying to choose. We were trying to decide on a mix for the song and. Everyone was making this big deal about it and I was like, oh, look, just put it out. If it's going to take, it'll take. If it doesn't, it doesn't. We'll move on to the next thing. And then it just started, people started picking it up all over the world. There was this great excitement. I can't really describe it. It's hard to describe what it's like when you're in that position and everything's happening around you. But I remember feeling that I was incredibly ready for what was happening, but that the band wasn't. That's interesting. You you were ready, but they were not. So what what was the what was the it wasn't the us divide and them. there? It wasn't mm. it wasn't me and them. It was it, us as a unit. We mm. weren't ready. Right. I was ready, but the the five of us together, there was something that just wasn't wasn't prepared. Yeah. So what happened though when that moment of not feeling prepared when you're literally out there and it, it was huge. I mean, it was, a, it was a massive song. How did that manifest that feeling of not being prepared? Maybe me saying not being prepared. I mean, never prepared for that kind of success. You just not. What I mean is that we weren't, we didn't have enough of an anchor of ourselves to get us through that process. And even though we did, we have we have gotten through it. We have survived as a band, less one member. It's a fucking clusterfuck when you're in that situation. There's no other way that I can describe it. Things are coming at you from all angles. You have to make choices based on, and this is what I found really difficult, was that my my intention as an artist is to just get better and work. I feel like at some point, if I'm working and just focusing on getting better and writing songs and putting them out, at some point you're going to get something that that sticks and that's a, a beautiful piece of work. And, yeah, you might have to do some shit stuff along the way, but that's essentially the breaks. But then there's the other, the other school of thought, which a lot of artists that I love and respect have adhered to, which is be selective about what you do, be uncompromising, be difficult, fight for what you want. Don't let people walk all over you. You know, all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying the two are mutually exclusive. I'm just saying that at that point in my life, I really came up against those two One on one side wanting to be very open and say yes to everything because I'd, I'd never had the experience of opening for arena shows, you know, doing a corporate gig for a, a company that I fucking hate because it meant that we could go and do an overseas tour or, you know, all those sorts of, of choices that you're given mm. when you're in a group. And it's not just about you anymore. It's about, well, what do we need to do as a team 
to get through this? And what, what are our big goals? Do we want to be the biggest band in the world that plays stadiums or do we want to be something else? Mm. And I think that's what I mean about not quite knowing Finding your voice, as Not quite say. knowing what we wanted to do. I remember at the time, I mean, I, you said this was your favourite song or your, the song that you most loved, I guess, mm. you, and you released since then in your new album, of course, as well. Has it changed out of interest? Yeah, I, th- there are some songs on the, the, on the new record, I think, that have taken its place, but it was just, it was just a moment in time. And I, I've had so many people all, all over the world ask me about that song and Sometimes it feels like it's it's like um, how do you feel about having this, you know, song that you can't replicate or you'll never do again or whatever. But I just don't feel like that. I just feel lucky. You're not trying to replicate it though. No, I've never no, had. It's a bit bollocks, I think. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot. I will not. I shall not. It is, no, it is it's, there. It's like a child. <laughs> you gave birth to the child. I was listening to a podcast with you the other day. You're actually talking about U2. We were listening to U2 and how Bono used to record his vocals um, standing in front of the, the desk or the console or something like that. What is it that you do now that's kind of unique when it comes to thinking about how to record? Something about the way that the vocal has to has to work in your ears. I've realised since I've started working with in-ears on stage that I have a particular preference for my mix. When guys are doing my my ears on stage, they always say to me, oh, you, you're really different because you don't like to hear yourself. And I, it's true. I don't really like a lot of myself in my mix. But that's not to say that I don't like it loud. I just like to feel, I like to feel like I'm part of the group. I don't like to feel like I'm sitting on top of the group. I guess it's a rare thing. I don't really have any other women to talk to about it, I guess, because um, most of the other girls that I'm friends with are quite, they're in more of a pop genre um, or singing to uh, electronic tracks or stuff like that, which is a completely different Mm. mix to how you would mix a, a live band. In terms of recording, man, I'm still getting used to it. I love performing. I love being on stage. I don't particularly like recording. I really tried to break that on this record or at least get better. And I'm definitely, definitely more comfortable in the studio than I used to be. But yeah, probably when I did that interview, I was talking about how difficult it was for me to just have earphones on in the studio, just work with cans. Because you're just hearing yourself. So yeah, well, is it a, it's, it's just, just a lot it's more intimate. Weird. Yeah. It's just that you don't get a sense of the space or the room or the, the way that the instruments are interacting with each other, or it's just like you're in this dead flat space. And that's also got a lot to do with the fact that we, we have our own studio and where, you know, Jack's doing the cans mixes and he's not the greatest like to do a good cans mix is a very specific thing yeah so there's a real difference in your view between how you are on stage the persona as part of the group to to what you have to do when you're recording the song is it difficult to reconcile the two do you think yeah it used to be that's just getting better yeah so this recording of this latest album was a much more confident thing for you well yeah it's it's getting my head around the fact that I never thought about myself as a singer When I'm on stage, I don't feel like a singer. I feel like a performer. That's always been my great love of of being on stage and the spotlight. I feel very at home there because I'm talking to people. There's a sense of energy there, whereas in the studio, 
I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm like, well, who am I talking to? <laughs> and so now I imagine that I'm on stage or I'll trick myself or do little things. So right. I can get yeah. that feeling again I when can, you're there. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. again, because the, the song of a, I mean, the recording is so different to what it is that you want to do when you're in front of an audience, but mm. you, you want to have that experience in the recorded song that when we're listening, that we feel like we're, we're with you in that studio or with you watching you on stage or something like that. Is that, is that kind of what you think? I think when I'm on stage, I'm focused on telling the story. On stage, it's all about the moment. Once you sing whatever you've sung, it's gone. Whereas on record, and you can hear my breath, <laughs> it's there forever. Yeah. So that fear of committing something down, I've had to work through. We've talked a bit about your new record all the way through, but you just mentioned being on stage and also earlier Sydney, the the scene here in Sydney, it's it's slowly died in the arse is, is one way of putting it. There's a more formal way that we can say it is that, you know, your band that we've talked about already today that has been born of the night scene, this capacity mm. to be able to go out and cut your teeth on various stages around the city, which is becoming more and more starved. So I'm curious about if you had had... Being starting out now, do you feel that you would have had nearly the same success as opposed to when you actually started out because of what's happening in this city? Well, the truth was it was it was difficult when we started. So I don't know what it's like for bands now. I really I pity them, which is horrible. But there there are other factors, you know, like the fact that the death of the band, the band has has died as a preferred musical unit over the last nine years when people want solo acts they want duos they want producers do you mean people watching or people who are booking both right well both yeah I also think being in a band is it's such a pressure it's a it's emotional being in a band you've got to you've got to manage each other you've got to support each other there are, there are so many factors, least of all the, the cost of living in Sydney. And it's so boring to talk about it, but it's a big factor, huge factor. Um, and that's why a lot of bands move to Melbourne or they move to Brisbane. My thing about Sydney, I wrote this record about Sydney because I, I love this city. <laughs> I am such a, a patriot for this city. I, I cannot even describe the love I have for for my home and it's only been it's I've only figured out that love by touring all over the world yeah and living overseas and understanding what it is about Sydney that is so beautiful but it just it just seems to be this city of missed chances doesn't it of like a, a certain aspiration that we never quite got there and it's in the it's in the city's planning itself. I feel it when I'm walking around because it was so. It just happened because well, just, of the way no, we wandered but it on was up the mangled. It was mangled. You know, the, the, I have another way of looking at the, that. <laughs> Do you think so? Well, I think it is. There is a way that you can look at it where you've got Melbourne, which is the grid. Okay. Mm. Adelaide is a grid. Sydney just happened organically following the traditional lines, you mm. know, of, of the pathways from the harbour up, up George Street, et cetera. So it is a bit mangled, but it's also kind oh, no, of funnily, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't organic. Mean, I don't mean that aspect. I love that beautiful, organic nature of the Sydney landscape. 
what I mean is that in the city's evolution, it's been highly mismanaged. Oh yeah, and we had the in the up until the sixties or seventies, we had the biggest single tram line in the world. My grandmother talks about getting on the tram to go to Tamarama, yeah, to go to dance, you know, to My a dance. My parents did too. Yeah. Oh, you you just catch the tram down to the beach, darling, you know, and then we could drink and ha- do whatever we wanted, and we get on the tram and go back home, and yeah. you know, it's just unfathomable to me how the city has been taken over by cars, and how cars just have this big power. Like, well, let's make more highways for more cars. And that's what I mean by mangled. Yeah, no, I think yeah, and, and, uh, and you know the cultural on the cultural side, yes, it's been highly mismanaged. I don't think there's really been anyone stepping in aside from, but maybe Clover who gets it. She gets it. Clover being the the Lord Mayor of Sydney. Yes, Lord Mayor. Thank you, Lord Mayor. She she gets it, and look, she cops a lot of shit from all sides, but I think essentially she's got the right idea, which is if we're going to have a tram system or if we're going to have this in Sydney, why wouldn't it be the best in the world? Mm, mm. Why would we settle for second best? Why wouldn't we think of ourselves as a great cosmopolitan city, one of the great cities of the world? Why would we shoot for anything less? I grieve for the city because I feel like the people taking care of it haven't taken care of it. The custodians. But in some ways, by being an activist and talking about the the power that the city can actually have, we all, you as part of the preachers too, have can be custodians of the city to promote, to to use the platform, I guess, that we have, you have to, to talk about what it can be. Mm. And, you know, as you say that you wrote the, the release about Sydney, about your, your love for Sydney as well, that, that may filter through. Is that, in some ways, is that the hope? Yeah, it's all about Stories. I mean, we talk about this all the time as a storytelling and, you know, artists are here to tell stories. And I think uh, this this probably goes in one ear and out the other because people go, well, what was so important, important about stories? Why do we need more stories? But that's the fabric of our lives and what is put down endures and that becomes what the next generation takes from whoever made that stuff. I think getting back to your really early question about, you know, what made me get into music later in life. I don't think I answered that question. Because you're doing it later in life now. So I'm doing it later. We're talking, doing it's, it the, whole, the whole interview is about this. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that side of music, which is providing something grander than ourselves, like a higher meaning, a higher purpose. That sense, that sense that you get from a song that, like a Bob Dylan song or you know, like a war on drugs song where it's, there's no particular meaning. It's quite ambiguous. And I love any kind of ambiguity in, in songwriting, but there's a sense that you're just on the edge of that magic peripheral where you, you know, you get a sense of the grander meaning of life, but you don't quite know what it is. You're just touching it. And you don't, need to talk about it. The songwriter doesn't need to talk about it, but everybody knows that it's there. And that's spiritual. And that's what we need as humans. We don't need songs about real life. We need songs about what's beyond real life. What are the the little spirits existing in the waters around Sydney? What's in the rocks? What's in the sky? What makes up where we come from? 
Why were we born here? Reflections of who we are. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what girlhood does. I hope so. Fuck. <laughs> it certainly does. <laughs> Just say yes. Yes. Yes was what Absolutely. it does. Absolutely. Uh, Izzy Manfredi, thank you. She's dancing in the studio. Thank you. It's been really delightful speaking with oh, you. Thank You're you the so best. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's a long story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. The season features guests from the Vivid Live program, and it's hosted by me, Vanella Kernerbone. Produced and edited by Cara Jensen McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hearway. The music mix is from Evan Williams, and we were recorded by Josh Craig. Mastered by Cullum Jensen McKinnon and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. 